This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to helping engineers succeed in work and life. The show is hosted by engineering enthusiast Anthony Fasano and Chris Knutson. Both are professional engineers who found success early in their careers and now work together to help other engineers do the same. Now it's showtime. This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the show for engineers who want to succeed in both work and life. And I'm Chris Knutson, your host for today's episode. I trust this finds you doing exceptional wherever you are and whatever engineering project you happen to be working on at the moment. Now, in this episode, I talk with Mike Leggett, who is a psychologist with a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD in clinical health psychology and neuropsychology, and a second doctorate in energy systems engineering. The marrying of these two seem pretty separate as far as fields of professional study and thought is concerned, but it's the result for Mike of an experience that he had doing laundry in 2003. That's right. So even the most mundane tasks that we are faced with in life can be a moment of revelation. If we're only paying attention, and Mike obviously was, he's going to explain how this all came into being through this one experience that he had. It's, it's pretty interesting. And now he is an expert who specializes in the science of how people apprehend and comprehend information and make decisions working with very complex systems. But before we move into the main segment, I want to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. Now, if you're thinking about taking the FE, PE, or SE exam, I recommend that you check out PPI, the leader in engineering exam prep. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. You just have to use promo code COACH at ppitopass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com, and use promo code COACH for a 20% discount. I want to give you a quote related to today's topic to bring us into the show. This is actually a Dutch proverb. I think it's very appropriate here, and it is that he that has a choice has trouble. And with that, let's get into the main segment, ensuring the resiliency of the power grid and critical infrastructure with Mike Leggett. Now it's time for the main segment of our show, and for today's main segment, I'm joined by Mike Leggett. Mike is the CEO and founder of Resilient Grid Incorporated, whose mission is to grow resilient infrastructures by optimizing the human side of infrastructure management, including situational awareness, decision-making support, and collaboration tools in normal and emergency operations, and also in fostering the kinds of organizational culture that empower humans to work more efficiently and effectively, thus lowering human error rates. Now, he's been a programmer for over 20 years and worked in the energy, financial, medical, neuroscience, research, and educational sectors. And Mike holds MA and PhD degrees in clinical health psychology, neuropsychology from the Furkoff Graduate School of Psychology, the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and MSE and PhD degrees in energy systems engineering from the University of Texas at Austin. And he's a certified performance technologist. Wow, Mike, that's a lot of education. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here today. I know that you happen to be coming to us uh, from Austin, where you did your uh, did your second uh, PhD degree. So it's great to have you on the show. And we're going to have a really interesting conversation because one of the first questions I've got to ask you is, how does psychology and energy systems engineering come together? What led you to dive into that world? I'd say there are two reasons. Uh, One was a personal story that really helped me to understand that linkage between the two. And now, since that experience, seeing the linkages in lots of other ways. 
from my perspective, every time that a human being makes a decision to turn on a light switch, purchase an electric vehicle, decide whether or not to get solar panels in their home, replace a compact fluorescent or incandescent bulb with an LED, etc., really they're making a human behavior. And that human behavior scales up to energy decisions that can be seen from the distribution, transmission, and grid operator level. And so ultimately, a lot of what energy use really is, is empowering us to behave in the ways that we choose to behave. So for example, here in Texas, where it gets very hot, especially in the summer months, you will find significant relationships between residential air conditioning and electric load. Similarly, you'll also find changes as far as diminishing relationship between GDP and energy increases as efficiency takes over, but even still the decisions to, from the company's standpoint, to invest in the R&D necessary to create these more efficient devices and decision-making on the part of all of the humans who will choose to do everything from buy an electric vehicle to have a mobile app on their phone, which is using some cloud-connected services they all ultimately become energy decisions as well. So my personal story was that many years ago when I was working on my psychology dissertation, like many graduate students, I spent more time writing than I did, let's say, doing laundry. And so had this you know, massive basket full of dirty clothes I needed to, uh, that I needed to clean. It's not a very elegant story, but a lot of you know, life happens to you in those kinds of unexpected moments. So I was living in an apartment in New York, carried down these baskets, and as I was moving things from washer to dryer and you know, putting quarters in the uh, machines in the apartment building, I think it was I put the last quarter in the last dryer and I pushed in the tray to start the dryer and the lights went out. And I thought that I had just blown a fuse because I was using all of these uh, you know, washers and dryers at the same time, but it was 2003, the Northeast blackout. So what ended up happening was as a ham radio operator, I was fortunate enough to live a few miles away from the emergency operations center. So really then sort of fell back on my training and ended up spending a lot of the evening as net control in the emergency operations center and really got to see a behind the scenes view of what happens when the lights go out. And ultimately, a while later, reading the root cause analysis from NERC and FERC that really identified vast majority of factors that contributed to that blackout were human factors. Everything from loss of situational awareness to management training, the way that uh, the organizations were encouraging or discouraging certain behaviors, ultimately all were really human factors. I recognize that there may be value for having someone with that psychological background working in the energy space to try to facilitate that side of the equation. Ultimately, now I look at it as a co-optimization problem where you have physical assets that you need to maintain in an optimal fashion. You have your cyber components that need to be optimal, but so too do you have your human components. And if you can optimize all of them together, that's really when you can build resiliency on the grid. What a great story, because it was very vivid for me, and I actually did happen, I was living back in the U.S. in the 2003 timeframe, a little bit further down the uh, eastern seaboard uh, down near Norfolk, Virginia, we didn't have as much of an impact down there. But I actually do remember this situation that took place uh, a number of years ago. So, and you highlighted for us as you were telling the story, especially as you got into the Emergency Operations Center 
and and then reading the uh, after action reports that talked about some of the issues that came up uh, that led to that blackout. A lot of the listeners may not have much background in emergency operations or really understand maybe even the overall power transmission system in the U.S. So would you mind maybe explaining a little bit about what some of the major challenges are in the current power transmission system in the United States? Ultimately, the way that I would tend to think of the system is that you can split it apart between transmission, which would be your higher voltage uh, systems, distribution, which are lower voltage and really the kind of wires that would run through your backyard to bring power to your home, generation, and also uh, some emerging technologies like microgrid, IoT, and so forth, and distributed renewables. Ultimately, the way that I would describe the system is that it's a rapidly changing system where a lot of the design decisions that were made when the system was built no longer apply or things are starting to change rapidly as new technologies come online. So, for example, when the bulk power system was built, there was an expectation that everything would flow from high voltage to low voltage. So you'd have these massive power plants, coal, natural gas, geothermal, hydroelectric, etc., that would then be transformed up to high voltages, transmitted across vast different distances, brought down to distribution levels, and then sent into homes and so forth. Now, several different things are changing because really what reliability meant back in those days was most of those power plants you could control and they were highly reliable. And most of the load, the demand that had to be met, was easy to predict. Now, one of the things that's interesting about electricity is that there's not really a good energy storage technology at grid scale yet. So what that means is in order to maintain the system, what you have to do is maintain a constant match of supply and demand. You can predict that, but also that's getting harder as well. Again, with very little storage on the system, it really is a very dynamic, real-time environment. Several things are changing at this point in the energy world. One of them is the growth of distributed generation. It's possible that someday you might have solar panels on every roof, for example, and that might actually mean that power is flowing back from the distribution system up into the transmission system. That wasn't really engineered that way. The system wasn't built with that in mind, so that's a challenge. Also, a lot of renewables are coming onto the grid. Just this past week on Sunday, Southwest Power Pool peaked at over 52% of their grid running off wind energy, which is incredible. The record right before that was ERCOT's 48%. And so in both of these service territories, you see this new renewable resource coming online. But one of the things about this new renewable resource is it's not highly controllable, meaning that the wind will blow when the wind blows and you'll generate when you generate. You can forecast it, predict it. If you need to, you might even be able to curtail it. But ultimately, you're not pulling a lever to make the wind blow more. And therefore, you have to do more work on the other traditional power plants to make sure that they're able to balance that out, again, maintaining that constant balance. One of the other things that's happening is that our demand side is also changing. So it used to be that it was very easy to predict demand. Now, as efficiency, renewable generation, and so forth has come online, there's been a separation between economic growth indicators and load growth. So it's getting harder to predict what that's going to be. And you also have new levers, new controls that you never had before. 
you hear a lot about these IoT devices, so smart inverters, smart thermostats, electric vehicles. All of these devices are internet connected and offer the potential for a grid operator to sort of dispatch them. Even something as simple as shifting your refrigerator's uh, dehumidifying cycle can have significant effects if you scale out to hundreds of thousands of them. And so they're finding new tools available at their disposal. And in many ways, part of that new dynamic system also includes your traditional big data challenges. So you have more and more sensors. It used to be a lot of the telemetry you would get to manage a system would come every two to four seconds. Now you're getting data 300 times a second through a device called the synchrophaser. And so that gives you new visibility into things you were never able to see before, but it also really changes the dynamic of the relationship between the operator and their data. Also, you find growth in automation as well, which also further changes the dynamic between the operator and the system. I mean, there's some pretty interesting challenges there. I think one of them that I kind of key into because it really gets into, I can see it really starting to get into some significant risks. It has to do with regards to the IoT or the Internet of Things. It seems to me that that not only is adding to the increased complexity of a grid system where you have that ability to be able to interact with hundreds of thousands of devices, but it could also lead to undesirable risks in the system overall as well from a cyber standpoint. As you expert in this area, this, this field, and there's obviously been a lot of press coverage on cyber hacking and everything else associated with it. What are some of the steps that are being taken at the industry level to help make sure that these types of devices and then maybe even the more complex industrial level uh, systems involved with the power grid are better protected against those kinds of cyber risks? I can certainly talk about the area of this question that I spend a lot of time working on. I'm not expert in all areas, so you know I'll try to keep it within sort of my area of uh, domain. Ultimately, to go back to your original question, this is another example of the scaling of human behavior. You know, the software that's running these IoT devices, the people who are coming up with the math for the algorithms, the cybersecurity, the cryptography in order to do this work, as well as building out everything from the front-end user interfaces to the back-end firmware that are going on these devices. That's all done by human beings. For example, some of the things that I do is try to identify some of those low-hanging fruits. For example, the organizational change could produce significant improvements. One of the things that's also changing, and this is not just in the energy world, is that we're moving from a building of things to a building of ideas. And in many ways, to me, the software revolution is really about that transition. So one of the things that would happen is if you had, you know, let's say, for example, I worked in an automobile factory, and my job was to take this particular nut and put it on that particular bolt. If you wanted me to work faster, you could offer me a cash incentive, and I would work faster, at least for some period of time. But if you were asking me instead to sit and stare at a screen and think, to solve a new problem that's never been solved before, that's actually a very different domain. That's a thought exercise. And so if you were to offer me a financial bonus for achieving that by a certain day, you're actually increasing the risk that I will fail. You're increasing the risk of error. And you're increasing my stress in general. At the same time that this is happening, so some of the other research that I've done on some electric human interaction questions 
have had to do with the way people respond in emergency situations. I'm happy to go into the long story if you're interested, but the short summary is that when you have people doing highly mentally intensive work, what they eat matters. And so if you imagine, you know, for example, a traditional company that's making these IoT devices, they're probably competing with other IoT companies, so their managers are trying to offer bonuses to incentivize faster performance, which again is an increased risk. You know, if they make people work late to try to achieve those goals, what are they often going to do? They're not going to have uh, salads and apples and bananas delivered. They're probably going to order pizza. And then as you increase that carbohydrate input, you're increasing also the risk of uh, human error during that process of coding. Ironically for me, a lot of the cybersecurity issues that we're seeing in these IoT devices really are stemming from human errors or human factors that could be configured differently for a better outcome. That's a really interesting concept. And right now it's taking my mind in, a, I guess, a direction that I really never have, have spent much time thinking about. I've got some level of experience in crisis response and emergency operations centers. Let me just say this, Mike, I've always thought that, you know, obviously a, a good diet is very useful for so many things, but I'd never thought about it in the realm of how it might actually apply to decision-making in, in these types of situations, or even in this particular case, coding, which just for a moment then makes me think about potential human errors, human factors issues for other types of engineers, like civil engineers or structural engineers who are doing design work and how that may affect them as well. So it's a really interesting concept. If someone wanted to read more about that type of research, do you have any sources that you might be able to recommend? Sure. So actually, in the human factors literature, a lot of this would fall under what you'd call the complex socio-technical system literature, because really it's looking at particular aspects. So for example, diet in workplace, and then looking at the way that this is the system damping a human weakness, or is it reinforcing it, you know, for example, in the resistance to it. You know, if you take people's uh, pizzas away and you replace it with kale salads, chances are you may be looking at a bit of an uprising. So you have a lot of those kinds of systems questions you have to look at. A lot of the research, frankly, on uh, the diet issue in particular, I'm actually uh, working on an article now on, on that and hope to have that out probably mid-March. But beyond that, it's a fairly understudied topic. Part of the reason is in order for this research that I did to have been successful, I essentially had a population of system operators who were with me for two days from, I don't know, was it 7 to 4.30 or something like that. And so you could change one aspect and observe it over a long period of time. Your traditional research lab study may struggle with that kind of time duration for a study. So there's not as much literature as I would like. I'll circle back with you to find out if we can get a link to that article at, um, because it'd be great. We'll eventually link it up to this podcast, the notes that are associated with the podcast so that people can go take a look at that. And I know that I myself am interested to, to read that one. I think it's a very interesting concept. Thank you. And if you're interested, I gave a presentation on this topic at the NERC Improving Human Performance on the Grid Conference, I believe two years ago. And the title of it is Blackout Fried Chicken. So it's a fun story. Yeah, that would be a great one if there's a way we can figure out how to get that one linked up as well. I'd love to be able to share that. It's maybe related or it builds on this discussion now about the human factors component. 
and getting back into uh, situations where there's crisis response and the decision-making that has to go along with that. Just from my own experiences in, in those type of situations, you're dealing with limited data, unclear information, very rapidly changing situation. Do you foresee, this maybe goes more to your human factors psychology background, but do you foresee artificial intelligence or other types of automated systems being able to, to assist and augment us humans as we deal with these types of very complex situations, be it with, uh, let's say, the, the electrical grid or power transmission systems or other types of uh, very important decision-making? I do, but probably not in the traditional sense that many AI researchers would highlight. The biggest concern from the human factors perspective, uh, I'd consider it to be the out-of-the-loop syndrome. Part of the challenge with automation, especially when you're dealing with automation algorithms that are capable of responding far faster than a human being could comprehend, even if they had you know, complete attention on whatever screen was showing them that information. So part of the challenge of that is it's akin to the early autopilots, where you actually found an increase in airline crashes during the early autopilot phase, not because the autopilots were flawed in any way, but because the human beings, the pilots, were disconnected from the real-time state of the system. The old joke was that those early autopilots didn't have much in terms of user interface. It was really just basically, you know, flip the switch and the autopilot says it's on. And the joke was that if that light goes off, you either have 10 seconds or the rest of your life to figure out what's going on and solve it. So I don't believe that part of the, both the beauty and the challenge of this emerging grid that we're moving into with bigger, faster data and all of these other kinds of challenges, including automation, is that it's getting harder and harder to have the human beings in the loop and able to see the signal pulled away from the noise. You know, I would argue that a lot of what we're seeing is actually, it's not just that we have more data. Frankly, often we have more data, less information. So put another way, the signal-to-noise ratio continues to grow towards the noise at a sort of an increasing pace. There's a concept in human factors of adaptive automation, meaning that if I'm, for example, working at 2 in the morning, chances are my reflexes will be a little slower. I'm more likely to make some mistakes. There may be some value in having an automated system validate what I do or give me some support. But the idea would be that until we would want to move to a system where we believe that we can create automation that will cover 100% of the use cases, that there's no situation where we would ever want a human being to directly intervene with the system, which I don't anticipate happening anytime soon, we're sort of moving into this nebulous area where the more the human becomes disconnected from the real time, actually even if the automation works, you know, moves from 90 to 99 to 99.9% .9 of the time, at some point you'll have the black swan event where you need those human beings. And if their situational awareness is poor, they really haven't interfaced with the system enough to have those kind of habits of proper rapid interaction, those are the moments we need them the most and those are the moments where we've set them up to fail. I appreciate that. It's a really good uh, overview of how these systems may come online. And I, just from my own personal perspective, would agree with you that uh, having humans completely out of the system in a lot of different factors, a lot of different industries, a lot of different types of infrastructure systems isn't necessarily the best idea. So it's uh, it just maybe me 
not comfortable with it, but I think you've identified, you know, some reasons as to why that would not be necessarily a great idea. We're kind of moving towards the uh, end of the interview here. I just wanted to ask, because you've started a company called Resilient Grid, which deals with human errors uh, in complex networks and helping to improve decision support. And I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about how the work, the research that you've done, how does it go about doing that? The way that I would think about it conceptually is that just as you would have all of the core systems in any critical infrastructure that have interfaces to each other or to the systems in the field that they're monitoring, my focus is really about building that interface between those systems and the human being. So my background in psychology was specifically on um, something called the neuropsychology of visual attention, which was really asking the question of when you see something, how does it get picked up in the eye and transferred first to an area of the brain called the DLGN and then downstream from there? How does that get processed and what insights does that give us and opportunities for optimization? So for example, a lot of the work that I do is really focused on looking at the human being who's sitting in front of the screen. And by the way, that human being is not necessarily just an operator. Uh, more and more, it's also the IT personnel who are deploying and maintaining these systems. But really to focus on those uh, human beings and their needs and making sure that the systems that we provide them, the way that we integrate and visualize the data, maximizes the probability of their success. And really for me, it's not about building a static image or providing some data that would sit up on a wall. It's really about building a new kind of interaction between the human being and their situational awareness tools so that they're able to uh, interact with it, configure it. And really, as with most problems, when you pull away all the noise, the signal stands out very clearly. So it's really facilitating those kinds of interactions with their systems. Just one more question for you, which is going to help folks be able to get to where they need to go to, to learn a little bit more about you. Where can our listeners learn more about the work that you're doing, the research that you're doing? On uh, resilientgrid.com, I'm looking forward to launching a blog in the near future and really uh, starting to try to publish more about these kinds of issues. And also, I'd invite people, uh, anyone who's interested, feel free to connect to me on LinkedIn. I'm always, uh, I really enjoy these kinds of conversations. And for me, getting to learn from other people about what they're seeing in their areas of critical infrastructure or other engineering disciplines, from my perspective, this is a universal approach that could work, not just in electric power ops, but across multiple domains. And so I'm always eager to, to learn more about other domains. Mike, thank you very much. For everyone listening, we'll make sure that we have the uh, the links to Resilient Grid, also to Mike's uh, LinkedIn profile. That'll all be in the show notes for today's episode, so please go check those out. Mike, I want to thank you again for taking some time and having a conversation with me today. Thank you so much. It's been an honor, and I really appreciate your time. Okay, so now it's time for our Take Action Today segment of the show. And today I'm going to give you some tips for timely decision making. But before I do that, I want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI. Engineers often ask me what exam prep materials or review courses they should use in preparing for the FE, PE, or SE exam. And hands down, I recommend PPI. I personally use PPI's materials to pass my exams. 
And I recently had a chance to demo their new review courses. And it's why I feel confident recommending PPI for those of you planning to take the next step in your career. So PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of the podcast. You just have to use COACH, that's the promo code, at ppi2pass.com. And again, it's PPI, the number two, pass.com. And use the promo code COACH for that 20% discount. Okay, so as a leader, you're generally working with two types of decisions, immediate or crisis action or everything else. Okay, so immediate crisis action and then everything else. So to be timely and effective in what you decide requires forethought and practice. Now, there isn't an effective leader operating in any organization anywhere who hasn't invested some time to reflect on how they're going to make decisions. So here's four different tips that I'll give to you to think about how you make decisions and some things that you can think about to make your timely decision-making better. So first, create a structure for timely decision-making. Now, both crisis action and deliberate situations require their own structure for timely decision-making. In crisis situations, training is going to take the lead in supporting the leader to make a quick decision. People want leaders who decide, not oscillate, especially when chaos is reigning supreme. So the training is going to be very important. I come from a military background, and, and this is definitely the case there. When things get very chaotic, you rely, you fall back to foundations, and those foundations are built through training. So training is going to be very important to be able to have that foundation so you can make a very timely and effective decision when you're faced with some kind of a chaotic situation. Second, understand the effects that bias is going to play. Now, you can't fully eliminate bias from your thinking any more than you can fully eliminate risk from a project. All you can do is address it, accept it, and then mitigate it. Now, there's over 40 named and studied biases that are out there, and uh, it's going to be pretty hard to probably find all of those and mitigate them all, especially if you're faced with some kind of a crisis situation. However, I'm just going to say maybe just worry about five that are contained in a, a pretty handy little acronym that I like to use called ECOPE, E-C-O-P-E, ECOPE, Evaluation of Evidence, Confirmation Bias, Overconfidence, Perceived Causality, and estimating probabilities. And I'm not going to go into any more detail on those right here. There's a good blog post on this, and I'll include the link to that in the show notes. But there you go, eco, five biases to be thinking about. The third is step that I'll share with you here. Third point I'll share with you is apply the law of three options. Now, a decision often becomes untimely due to a lack of proper ideation that generates suitable options for the decision maker. Rarely outside of a crisis action situation is the equation reduced to just one answer. So most often, you're going to have time to generate more than one viable option before beyond just doing this or doing nothing. So I was told early on in my career to always come up with three viable options when faced with a tough decision. Okay, and this advice has served me very well. So that's the law of three options. Come up with three different courses of action. Make sure they're viable. Use those to help you make a decision. And the fourth point that I'll share with you is provide your team with frames. And so what I mean by this is I really believe that out-of-the-box thinking is overused and overabused. I've found that rarely in most organizations is it necessary or even desired to generate innovative ideas to solve problems, especially reoccurring problems. The reason is that leadership typically abhors creativity. It's simply that not every problem requires a unique way to solve it. In fact, most organizations lack the resources necessary to constantly retool for the newest out-of-the-box idea to solve problems that don't exist or can be resolved very simply. So as the old adage uh, sagely prescribes, if it isn't broken, don't fix it. Instead, 
provide a box, provide some parameters that your team can use when they ideate and generate options that are both realistic and are going to actually result in a decision. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We'd uh, love to hear your feedback, comments, any questions you have. Just go to www.engineeringcareercoach.com where you're going to find a summary of all the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, the websites, or the books that were mentioned during the episode. You can also leave Anthony and I with questions in the comments section or visit the Ask Us tab on the website. We monitor all those comments and we're going to respond if you leave us one. Until next time, please continue to engineer your own success. Thank you for listening to the Engineering Career Coach podcast. Be sure to visit engineeringcareercoach.com where you can find all past episodes and also download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also to help develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.